0: I'm going to be in a, really in a different place in the Scriptures than I expected to be as, uh, as I was preparing this week. But as I started to think through everything that we had experienced and everything that we saw, I really began to narrow in on one instance, one moment, uh, one thing that stood out, because it was so significant uh, that I couldn't ignore it. And then we'll go from there perhaps onto a hodgepodge of various things. I have a lot that I could say, and perhaps if there's a desire interest outside of this morning to do so, we can arrange that. But as I considered what most struck me in terms of what's going on in Nigeria, that I saw with what aligns with... Uh, what I see in the Scriptures, I was constantly drawn back to one place, and that is is Second Corinthians chapter 8. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But I want to frame all of this in the context of what happened. Our vision, our hope, our desire of what we wanted to accomplish versus what God had in mind for us uh, the week that we were serving. So just a little background, Um, we landed in Abuja, the capital of Nigeria, and drove about seven hours uh, to Egbe, Nigeria, where H-E-L-P is located. Uh, From there, we traveled out about a a 15-mile drive, which uh, took uh, just over an hour and a half. Um, We landed in a uh, village called Okoloki, and in this place is located... um, King Mugarangi, who is the king over all of the Fulani people, who I mentioned in the video, uh, these Muslim people, who up until uh, our trip we've had complete and total access to, a Muslim people who have allowed uh, Westerners, by and large, to come into their settlements to proclaim the gospel and establish churches uh, for those who have been converted to Christianity, is unprecedented. It's quite remarkable in the history of world missions uh, that that would be granted by Muslim leaders, um, and yet he had allowed that. But uh, in, in an attempt to uh, show his power and that he still has influence over his people, he, um, he did not allow us to do that. So our plans shifted a little bit, and we went on to a village another two hours away uh, called Chakugi. Uh, where a new church has been planted within the last year. And this is not amongst the Fulani people, but actually a group of people called the Kambari people. Uh, this is primarily a former animist community. When I say animist, we're talking about a religion that exists in, uh, many parts of the world. Uh, it's the belief that there is a soul not only within human beings, but also within animals and rocks and the sun and the moon and everything else. So they worship God's creation as though uh, all of these things have a soul. So HELP was bringing the gospel to this community in Chikugi, and many of them were converted. And today, uh, a vast majority of that community is Christian. Some of them are Muslim, and a few of them remain animists. The elder of the community is an animist, but his entire family, to include his wife, are now Christians. And as a result, he has allowed them to build the uh, the structure that you saw in the video with the straw on the roof and the wooden poles holding, up, holding that up. So that's the church in the video that Job was asking for prayer. I know it's a little difficult to understand what he was saying, but he was asking uh, for prayer. He was asking uh, for help. It would it would cost them about $1000 uh, to build a uh, church building they're asking for zinc uh, the metal roof and uh, some uh, some uh, materials to build the walls so he was telling us about this and we saw all of this and our biggest question was why 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 the need or why the desire for a building And he explained to us that they built this structure right next to uh, the mosque for the Muslims in their community. And so it is believed in their culture that in order to uh, to establish legitimacy that they need to have some kind of structure where they can go and worship. And so then our next question, and this is where I'm headed, was to ask what were they doing? What were they seeking to do in order to accomplish their goals as a church in terms of giving? And this is what struck me and what drives me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. These people were gathering uh, all that they could give. They were gathering from, literally, their grain uh, from their storehouses. And they were giving to meet the needs of other believers in other churches. They were literally giving uh, what they had that they were not using to meet the needs of Christians who were in other churches that had been established uh, within the last year. They would sell off some of their uh, grain and the goods that they had uh, had harvested through the year and used some of those proceeds to meet the needs of these new churches. So I heard of this, and then I was immediately reminded of Second Corinthians chapter 8. And in chapter 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul is trying to raise money uh, in Corinth for, it says in verse 4 of chapter 8, the relief of the saints He took up a collection for this matter. And all we know from the context is that there was some sort of need in the church in Jerusalem. It was apparently quite significant because he was going to all the churches seeking to take up a collection. And uh, so he was gathering financial support from the churches. So he took the collection up in Macedonia and... This proved to be an inspiring example that he wanted to share with the Corinthians. So let's read together in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in in our love for you, see that you excel in the act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much has nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack." So I see uh, ten things I want to point out uh, from this text, and they're all very uh, short, and uh, we'll, we'll hit on each of them briefly. Uh, the first, let's begin again in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Notice that what happened in Macedonia is a work of God's grace. If there is to be any blessing in the local church of Jesus Christ, it will be all of grace. Not just the grace that gets us off the ground, but the grace that keeps us going each and every day in our walk as believers. The grace that sustains us. The grace that causes us to persevere. The grace that keeps us delighting in Christ Jesus, loving one another, loving our neighbors and laying our lives down for the sake of the gospel. So first, we must recognize that what happened in Macedonia and what is happening in Chikugi, Nigeria, is a work of God's grace. Secondly, verse 2, and the next four points are all from this verse. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. First, in a severe test of affliction. What this means is that when grace came and people were converted... To Christ and changed into radical, joyful lovers of other people, their troubles did not just disappear. In fact, it came in greater measure. Their affliction did not decrease, it increased. Grace does not just remove trouble. Indeed, sometimes grace often brings trouble into our lives. I spent a week very close, the closest I've ever been to someone who has truly suffered for the name of Christ. It's my new friend you saw in the video named Musa. Literally left for dead in his own blood. Lashed 100 times with a, a, a wooden cane nearly died for the sake of Jesus Christ and gladly told me he is ready to return to his people to proclaim the name of Christ, knowing full well that should he do that, he will be killed. He is ready and willing and desires to be killed in the name of Christ that his people would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a severe test of affliction, grace often... Brings trouble into our lives. My third observation here is: in the severe test of affliction, there are abundance of joy, and this is the true mark of God's grace present in the life of His people—joy, joy in the midst of severe affliction a heart of generosity, a heart of a desire to serve others in the name of Jesus is only by the grace of God. It is an overflow of joy that is rooted in the grace of God, not in freedom from affliction. The affliction is severe, but the joy in it is, what does he say? It's abundant. Severe affliction is, an abundance of joy. It seems like an absolute contradiction to include what he says next, my fourth point in the severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. So God's grace has not only brought more affliction, but it has also not alleviated their poverty. These are a people," this verse says, who are in extreme poverty. It didn't make them beggars. It didn't make them dependent upon others. It made these poor people radically generous. These are people very unlike us who have embraced severe affliction and extreme poverty and are not complaining, are not grumbling, are not whining, but are overflowing with an abundance of joy. This is the key to all Christian living, in and out of affliction. The church that I was able to see, our brothers and sisters in Chikugi, Nigeria, is the poorest group of people I've ever seen in 21 different countries I've been to. They are easily ranked amongst the poorest people in all the world. And yet, in their extreme poverty, their joy in Christ is overflowing. To put aside their desire to have a physical structure to gather in for worship, so that they can meet the needs of other believers in other churches. Indeed, they're giving their proceeds to provide for the building of other churches at the expense of not having their own place to meet. And this is an exact mirror, really, of what was going on in the church in Macedonia. And guess what? These are illiterate people who don't have Bibles to read, So they're not doing this because they read 2 Corinthians 8 and decided it was good and right to replicate what they saw. They're doing this because the Holy Spirit is doing among them the very thing the Holy Spirit did amongst the believers in Macedonia. Macedonia. And it is amazing what joy in Christ in our lives will drive us to give and to do for the fulfillment of the joy of others in Christ Jesus. So they had severe affliction, extreme poverty, and as that was poured into their life, the result was an overflowing of joy. And their joy resulted, in my fifth observation, resulted in a wealth of generosity on their part. The effect of God's grace, then, is not first to remove affliction, and not first to remove poverty, but first to give abundant joy that overflows in a wealth of generosity. All studies that have ever been conducted about giving show that on average, the more people have, the richer people are, the smaller percentage of their money goes to others. Whether that's to churches or charities or whatever. The more they have, the less of a percentage they give. And whether or not we as a people, whether or not we as Ephesus Church in Rincon, Georgia, is a generous church compared to those who are gathering in Chikugi, Nigeria, will be revealed at the last day when all the proportions are reckoned up. Brothers and sisters, I fear that each and every one of us has a very big surprise. Oh, that God would keep us, would keep me, would keep you from being enamored with wealth and possessions and comfort. It is very, very difficult to go to heaven from America. Like a camel passing through the eye of a needle The wealth that God has blessed us with can become a great source of joyful giving. It could be the very thing that allows us to do just like we see in the text. Just like I saw in Nigeria in greater measure. Or, it can be the very thing that turns our wants into needs and makes us blind and callous to the absolutely stunning reality of what is happening in and around God's people in the rest of the world. When you see what the grace of God accomplishes in extreme poverty, and compare that to the abundance of destruction that comes in prosperity, you can easily see that those who claim... That God wants you to be rich and have a lot of stuff, nice stuff that you can store up in bigger and bigger barns, are absolutely foolish. It is absolute foolishness to say that that is God's will for all of His people. The text says that the Macedonians' wealth was what? Their generosity. God accomplishes great things in the midst of poverty. And one of those is an abundance, a wealth of generosity that others would be served for the sake of the gospel. My sixth observation, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. So to add to the amazing example of the Macedonians, they didn't only give according to their means. What did they give? It says they gave beyond their means. So these new believers, they didn't give what they had. They even gave what they didn't have to give. I don't know how else to take this but to say that they took some incredible risks in their giving. They gave like the widow with two coins, they gave in a way that was more than they could give in order to meet the needs of others. And we might ask, what business does a people in the middle of the African bush living on much less than one dollar a day, many with one or no shirt, I had to do some video editing, (laughs) or pants or a pair of shoes hardly to be found in their entire community, what business do they have giving anything at all? Let alone giving beyond their means. The world looks at this and says, that's foolish. Paul, in this text, puts them forth as an example to be followed. As the joy of Christ overflows into cheerful giving for the sake of the gospel, even beyond their means. Seventh, Notice that Paul writes that they gave of their own free will. In other words, they gave on their own accord. They gave by their own deciding to do so. Paul did not beg them or convince them to do so. They were not coerced. They did as they wanted to do. And later in chapter 9, Paul reminds us of this attitude when he writes that God loves a willing, cheerful giver. Not a constrained or coerced giver. And he goes on with that. And my eighth observation Not only were they giving of their own free will, but they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of all the saints. So the giving of these poor people, these afflicted new believers, was not just free, it was passionate. Giving for them was so much a part of their joy in God's grace that they begged for the opportunity to give. Please, Paul, let us give to the needs. What this probably means is that Paul was probably trying to stop them from giving since he knew that they were so poor. And they were saying, no, Paul, our joy... Our joy will not be complete until it overflows into meeting the needs of others. Please, let us give. We do this a lot, right? When others want to give, when others want to meet needs, oftentimes we want to turn it off. We want to deflect it because we might look at their financial situation. It doesn't meet what they're doing. Or the need is not great enough to be taken from this person. But what ends up happening in doing that is that we're keeping them from experiencing the fullness of joy in their opportunity to give for the relief of the saints. Do not reject a cheerful giver. Ninth observation, he says, "...and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord." and then by the will of God to us. So their giving was not mechanical. It was not impersonal in any way. It was in no way in competition with their personal relationships. This, this giving, they do in two relational ways. First, it says they gave themselves to the Lord. So the money they're offering, what they gave to meet the needs of the saints, was not first. First, they gave themselves to the Lord. So God is their first priority. And having given themselves to the Lord, having committed to their lives to the purpose of joy in Christ, they were equipped, they were willing, they were eager to give of themselves to others. And truly, there is no other explanation. Had they not given themselves first unto the Lord, there would be no desire. There would be no eagerness to give to others. And tenth, notice in verse 8, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Notice what Paul calls all of this. He attributes it all to love. Why did they do it? Why did they give so much when they have so little? Why do they gather from all that they have just to give it away? Love. Genuine love. And let me clarify what I mean by that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, Paul writes, If I give away all that I have, indeed, if I give my body to be burned, and I have not love, I've given what? Nothing. I can give everything I own. I can give my very life. But if I do not do it in love, it's worthless. What does it mean? It means that this love is not rooted simply in feelings or affections or actions even. This love is rooted in the regenerating love of God in Jesus Christ who first loved us. So... Listen, this is very important if we are to understand this passage and if you're to grasp why I'm even going here today as I give a report of sorts of what's going on in the church, in the world. I'm not making an appeal to you today to give more money to the church so that we can meet our budget. That's important and necessary and that's very real for us, but I don't want you to walk away with that on your mind. Here it is. Paul held up the Macedonian church as an example. And I'm holding up Chikugi, Nigeria, as an example of love. Not just because they've given generously. They are being held up because their giving is sure evidence of the overflow of an abundance of joy in the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ in their lives. Any other form of benevolence is not rooted in love. It is self serving and in the end it is damnable. Let their love be an example to us as an overflow of our joy in Christ for the glory of God in the nations. Now, real quick, I want to shift gears a tiny bit and speak of the church of every nation. The Scriptures display clearly that Christ has an unwavering commitment to gather the church. All of His elect, from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Every people's, every shade, every language, every tribal distinction in every people group, there will eventually be amongst them those who have sovereignly been granted the free grace of God in Jesus Christ and have been redeemed and now live with the overwhelming joy in Christ in their lives. It is inevitable. This is plain from Matthew 28:19. Go there and go therefore and make disciples of whom all the nations. It's plain from Matthew 24:14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Romans 15.11 makes it plain. Paul quotes Psalms 117.1 Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise Him. It's plain in Revelation 5.9 You were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So specific to what I am talking about this morning, Christ has a commitment to gather into His church a people from the Fulani Muslims of West Africa. One of the things that was made all the more clear to me as I spoke with al Haji Sali about the gospel was that the primary issue of Islam, indeed the primary issue of every religion that must be reckoned with, is Jesus. Who is Jesus? And will He be submitted to and followed and honored for who He really is? Muslims, and I heard it spoke when I was with him, give the same wrong answer about who Jesus was as people were in Jesus' day. Remember? He asked, who do people say that I am? Matthew 16, 14. And Peter responded, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or what? One of the prophets. For Islam, Jesus is simply one of the prophets. He is not the Son of God. He is not the crucified and risen Redeemer of fallen man. He is not the creator of the universe. And every knee will not bow to Him and confess that Jesus is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. That is what their claim is. Therefore, Islam and animism and Buddhism and any other religion dishonors Jesus Christ and is not the way to everlasting joy in God. There is one mediator also between God and men, and that man is Jesus Christ. There is one way, one truth, one life, Jesus Christ, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. And He who has the Son has life, and He who has not the Son does not have life. So the task of global missions... The call and the task to go is absolutely necessary. He who believes the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 3:36. And Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 10 verse 14, How will they believe in him who have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Christ will build His church, He said. But God is not only the God of the end. God is also the God of the means. Christ will build His church through the Gospel. And the Scriptures are abundantly clear that it's specifically through the hearing of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He will do it through the word carried by human ambassadors of Christ. This is Christ's way of building his church and calling his elect unto himself through his own death and through the sacrifice and death of his people. The gates of hell will not prevail. So the question for all of us is where are we? in the march to continue to press back the gates of hell that are daily being quenched by the work of God through His people? Where are you individually in that march? Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To follow Jesus means to join him on the Calvary road that leads into death and then out of death. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Lose it to find it. Die to self that you might live. This is God's appointed means to bring his people into his presence from every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is God's appointed means of winning his people to Jesus Christ. We do what He did. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. We die with Him and we live with Him by faith. So Jesus died and Jesus rose again to save His church among all the peoples. And He promised, I will build my church. And now He calls us to the very same thing. And so the question is, will we join Him in dying to the world and living to Christ that we may win peoples in His name? Whoever loses his life for Christ and the gospel will find it and will bring others through the gates from death to life. So where are you in this march? Here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for some of us to die to self and to be on mission to see the gospel advance to the nations. There is no reason that when one or ten of us are physically on mission, going for the advance of the gospel, that everyone else should not be radically committed to the same exact purpose through both prayer and giving. I don't expect everyone in here to have a desire to go to Nigeria or anywhere else outside of surrounding counties. But I do expect that all of us would be fueled by the grace of God in the overflow of our joy to do whatever is possible in each of our situations, to love others by giving of ourselves and of our money and of our time and of our prayer that Christ would be exalted because of the significance of our commitment to His mission to make the nations glad in Jesus Christ. And I am looking for some of you to go. So, mark your calendars because, Lord willing, next September I want to be getting on a plane to Nigeria again with some of you. Not on a cool vacation to see another part of the world because I'm going to tell you it's tough. And the food is really bad. (laughs) And the traveling is brutal. And sometimes the smell is pretty overwhelming. And there are no real tourist attractions to stop and look at. And you might come home and be sick for a little while. But as ambassadors of Christ, I am praying now that some of you will be ready to go in a year. And some will look at this and say, well, it's really expensive and sending money would be a lot more effective. No, it won't. Remember, what is God's appointed means of advancing the gospel? It's not money. It's the proclamation of the gospel. And Christ came proclaiming the gospel in word and in deed. In grace and in truth. My motive and hope here is that in going, some of you will be struck with an absolutely unquenchable zeal to give your life to full-time mission work in the unreached parts of the world. Oh, that this could be true amongst us. May God raise up great men and women of Christ, of Ephesus Church, that will give their lives to global frontier missions. Men and women from our midst who will die to self for the sake of the gospel, and perhaps by whose very blood the church will advance. And the glory of God will shine all the brighter. It is said that the blood of the martyrs are the seeds of the church. May God count some of us worthy to go into all the world proclaiming the glory of Christ. That His kingdom would be advanced. May He make it to be so for His glory and for the joy of the nations. Let's pray together. Father, we pray earnestly that as we look to the example of Your people throughout this world, as we look to Your example in the Word of the church in Macedonia, as we look to Your heart for the nations, that we would be stirred with a great desire to see the Gospel advanced. And we pray now, Lord, we pray now that You would begin a work in our midst. You would begin to stir in the hearts of Your people a desire to go, a desire to pray, a desire to give, a desire to see the work of the Gospel to the nations being advanced. Help not one of us to be stagnant. Help us to not see missions as one little part that some people do, but that, that which we are all called to in Christ Jesus. That You have set us all as ambassadors of Christ to love one another, to love our families, to love our neighbors, and yes, to love the nations, to love the people of the world. Help us, Lord, to die to self, that we, in an abundance and overflow of joy, might give of ourselves that others would experience great joy in Christ our Savior. Father, I pray now that You would raise up in our midst men and women who would be willing to lay it all down and to go and to serve and in the face of danger and in the face of the unknown that they would say, May the Lord do what seems good to Him. Father, let this be a part of who we are as a people. Make this to be in our DNA as a church. That we would delight in sending and being sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. God, we love you and thank you for the means, for the opportunity to go into all the world proclaiming the gospel. And we know, Father, from Your Word that to whom much is given, much is required. Much, O Lord, has been given to us. We pray now that we would fulfill all that You require of us. In Jesus' name, Amen.